that talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to your Monday Buckeye Talk. We'll get this to you a little bit later. Doug Maurice and Nathan Baird. We're going to be doing what we always do on Monday, which is talk about Ohio State. Kind of a look back at the latest game for the Buckeyes, their big win at Michigan State on Saturday. We're going to do some national stuff, put Ohio State in context, and then what you're watching, what you're eating, what you're thinking at the end. And we want Nathan to talk about backup quarterbacks and not again, not the continuing discussion that we've had multiple times, including on the postgame pod, about the idea of why doesn't Ryan Day play Kyle McCord more? You got to get him ready for next year, that kind of thing. But we had real life examples on Saturday. Alabama played an entire game without its starting quarterback. Bryce Young did not play against Texas A&M. Jalen Milrow played. Kansas in, I don't know, I don't want to speak for Kansas. Was it the biggest Kansas football game in since 2008 or whatever it was, 2007. Yeah. Like, I mean, a huge game. They have Jalen Daniels, who's a Heisman candidate going into the game. He gets hurt in the final minute of the first half and a half when the Kansas offense was terrible. They put the backup quarterback in in the second half, and they they play better. The backup quarterback comes in and plays great for Kansas in that situation, right? So it they, there are examples here, Nathan, of... Of course, this happens to team. It actually, I, I tried to double check. Like, it actually has not happened to many other teams. Georgia hasn't really had to do it. Clemson, we all thought maybe, hey, Cade Klubnik maybe is going to take over the starting job for Clemson this year. He's barely played. He's played like less than Kyle McCord this year behind DJ Uyunglele. Caleb Williams at USC has taken all the snaps. Kansas and Alabama are the two big examples, but. I, th- I think it begs a question a little bit, Nathan, and we'll dive in here. And again, the reason we're a little later, guys, is on the weekends when Ohio State's on the road, it's just a it's a little bit of a pain in the butt to travel. And so we're going to record Monday mornings instead of getting it done on Sunday. When they're home, we'll still record on Sunday, have it to you bright and early Monday morning. We'll get it to you more like mid-afternoon Monday when Ohio State has a road game. Should a great team be able to beat another good team with a backup quarterback? Like, is that, is that a reasonable expectation of like, hey, this is life. Sometimes guys get hurt. Um, is that is that an expectation that a team like Alabama or Ohio State should have? I definitely think it's an expectation they should have, and they should certainly have it when you recruit the quarterback room the way Ohio State and Ryan Day recruit their quarterback room. Because this isn't a situation like 2019 where if Justin Fields had gotten hurt, now you're turning to – Chris Chuganov or whatever to try to go out and beat a good team like let's say a 2019 Wisconsin, 2019 Michigan State, 2019 Penn State, that level of team. You know, as good as that Ohio State defense and running game was, maybe that is a tougher ask. But when you're always going to be turning the quarterback job over to a usually second year guy who comes in with a you know a highly thought of guy a guy that you went out and had to fight the other best teams in the country to get him to sign with you, you should always have somebody in the chamber ready to go for that next shot. So I I absolutely think, again, in, in the scenario you're talking about, where it's still not really talent equated fully, right? You're still the team that has the overall talent advantage, and we can talk a little bit more about why that is as much the question about can Ohio State win with Kyle McCord as it is how good Kyle McCord is. But if, if you've still got that edge, then the backup quarterback 
should still be enough to win. It might not look like it usually does. It might not look like uh, 52 to 21 against Wisconsin, but you should still win that game. So Bam almost lost. And I think we got a reminder here, Nathan, and, and then we'll talk about the Kansas backup quarterback in a second. Bryce Young has been saving some bacon in Tuscaloosa for the last year and a half. And I think we got a a stark reminder of that on Shit. Um, Saturday because they – Bryce Young saved them against Auburn last year. You know, Bryce, Bryce Young, right? I mean, Bryce Young, Bryce Young has been a savior for that team. As much talent as Alabama has, you know, there's been real questions about their receiver play um, at times, right? There's been real questions about, I think, uh, their run game at times. And this Texas A&M game, so Jalen Milrow is, is Alabama's backup quarterback. And he is a second-year guy. He's in that big... 2021 quarterback class with Kyle McCord and JJ McCarthy and those guys just running through this real quick. My daughter is texting from college. I'm trying to turn the sound off. I apologize. If you hear a little beaky, 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 beaky. Quinn Ewers was the number one quarterback in the class of 2021, starting at Texas. Caleb Williams started off at Oklahoma, the starter at USC. Now he was the number two quarterback in the class of 2021. Sam Heward at Washington was number three. Brock Vandegrift, who's like the third string guy, at Georgia. Uh, he was number four. J.J. McCarthy, the starter at Michigan, was number five. Kyle McCord was number six. Ty Thompson, who is not the quarterback at Oregon right now, but is still the future quarterback at Oregon, um, was number seven. Jake Garcia, who sort of took over at Miami, at least for a half, like two weeks ago when Tyler Van Dyke was bad. Jake Garcia was number eight. Drake May at North Carolina, who's been awesome. Drake May has looked great. He's chucking it around. He's the number nine quarterback. Uh, in that class. Jackson Dart started at USC, now transferred to Ole Miss as the starter there. Not very good numbers this year, but Ole Miss is winning. Tyler Buckner, our old friend, started the season as Ohio's, as Notre Dame's starting quarterback, was hurt, now out for the year, but he won that job. Miller Moss is actually the backup to Caleb Williams at USC right now. He was the number 12 quarterback in that class, and the number 13 quarterback in the class of 2021 was Jalen Milrow. Number 82 player in the country, number 13 quarterback, Nathan and he's the backup quarterback at Alabama. It's not an unreasonable thing, right? It's top 100 national recruit, second-year guy. That's a reasonable backup. It's, it's what Kyle McCord is, right? I mean, this is this is it's a, it's a very, and he he looked lost at times, right? I mean, he had Bama turned it over four times in that game. He had a pick. He had two fumbles while he was running around. They also turned it over one other time. So Bama turned it over four times, missed two makeable field goals, had some goofy penalties, and barely beat Texas A&M 24-20. Jalen Milrow is unbelievable as a runner. I don't know. I mean, outside of like Lamar Jackson, I don't know that I've seen a quarterback who looks like he runs it better than Jalen Milrow, but he was not comfortable in the pocket. Nathan, right? I mean, and again, this is it's I'm not I'm not blaming him, but I'm just talking about the context of this situation that this is Alabama with a pretty big time recruit and he he did not look poised the way that Bryce Young, you know, like owns the pocket, you know, and it didn't look like they um really felt like they could trust him to make throws a lot of the time. They did end up relying on his legs. A decent amount, and Nathan, they 
I mean, Texas A&M's throwing a ball in the end zone on the last play of the game, down four to win at the three-yard line. Bama probably should have lost. Like, they're clearly the better team. But Texas A&M's been a mess this year. And Alabama probably should have lost to them because they had to play their backup quarterback. So as much as where I agree with you, it's not an unreasonable expectation of like, hey, tell your great defense, your running game, your offensive line, tell your play caller, let's let's pick up this young quarterback who's never started before and let's make plays around him and help him out. Bam almost lost, man. I mean, it was a stark reminder um, of, I guess it's not shocking because again, it's Bryce Young as the Heisman winner. It's going to be a huge drop-off. But man, I, I thought, Maybe they would just design a package of plays for him. He'd run like a maniac, right? They'd keep, they'd do things to make him feel comfortable and they'd still steamroll. And instead, um, 12 of 19 for 111 passing yards, all those turnovers. And they did try to make it, I think, easy for him, Nathan. They only threw it 19 times in that game, Bama did. They ran it 51 times. 17 of the 51 runs were by Jalen Milrow, the quarterback. 34 were by the running backs. So they they really tried to not ask too much of him. He, his first pass of the second half hit a, a Texas A&M defensive back in the chest. That should have been picked. That should have been another, his fourth turnover. It got rough, man. This is Bama, right? I mean, like it got rough in a in a big way. And man, it was like it was a reminder, dude. It was a reminder of these young guys. I don't know. It's a tough world, brother. I think it's interesting that Alabama could very easily be four and two right now if in backup quarterbacks played into it. You know, the game they almost lost this one, this this Texas A and M game, and then the game they almost lost to Texas that they might have lost to Texas if Quinn Ewers had never gotten hurt. And yep, I, it's I, I'm looking, I'm trying to think of this in context too because the the the, the change from C.J. Stroud to Com McCord from a schematic standpoint would not be as dramatic as what Alabama had to do last week. But I also think that, that just that basic competency comes into play too. And we have some example of this. We saw it last season when, you know, CJ Stroud pretty soundly beat out comic Accord to start the year. I don't think anybody, by the time we saw that finally, the, the, the announcement was inevitable by the end of that. And yet when, we we had been told that McCord had pushed him pretty well for at least a while, but we what we saw from McCord in the Akron game last year definitely made you think Ohio State would have been vulnerable to a loss with him in another game. Like if Ohio State had had to play Com McCord in that Nebraska game, even at Nebraska, where Nebraska did a fairly decent job of of, of choking off some drives and and stopping the run and 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 had a little bit of its own success on offense like that. That that would have been maybe a more precarious game with Kyle McCord instead of C.J. Stroud. But then that, that also still comes back to me as an example of, well, maybe it really still isn't Kyle McCord at the end of the day. Maybe it's all the other vulnerabilities that Ohio State had last year that made that seem like a bigger deal. Whereas now, when you look across position by position, how competent everything is is right now for Ohio State, how much discipline they seem to be playing with at so many positions, offensively and defensively, that the guts of this are so tight right now that it would allow you, that that Comacord could play and have success in this in that sort of situation. And and even the Alabama game is maybe even an example of that, that taking that kind of a step down 
if you're going to take that sort of a drop, your guts had better really be in the right place. And at Alabama, for more more or less, they are right now. I know what you're saying about you know the receiver issues, whatever. They've obviously got some really strong players on defense. They've obviously got other talent on that team, and it's enough to get you through one week. We're going to get into this specifically about Ohio State. Alabama in that game, again, they, they only completed 12 passes. Um, Jermaine Burton, three catches, 48. Corey Brooks, two catches, 44. They each had a touchdown. Um, you know, kind of hitting the guy on the move and letting them go. Jameer Gibbs, the transfer running back from Georgia Tech, did carry a load, 21 carries, 154, which you want from a guy in that situation. Also, by the way, Texas A&M was playing as backup quarterback, who was the starter, then lost yeah. the job. It was Haynes King, who won the starting job a year ago, got hurt right away at the start of the season, came back, won the starting job again this year, was not good. They benched him for Max Johnson, the LSU transfer. Then Max Johnson got hurt, so now they go back to Haynes King. And Haynes King, you know, winds up being okay. Um, but part of that is because he had some receivers picking him up. Haynes King was 25 of 46, 253. Not great. But Evan Stewart, who's a five-star, who looks like, oh, that you know, you drop that guy right in Ohio State's offense right now. He's a true freshman, unbelievable player. Eight for 106, made this like a ridiculous catch between two guys. And Moose Muhammad, six for 64, also some big-time catches. Like, you could see receivers picking up Haynes King in a way that I don't, I don't know that Bama has receivers who can do that, right? Which really contributes, I think, to that kind of situation um, with the backup quarterback. How much can you rely on your receivers? Like, well, it's not a perfect ball, but I made the catch anyway. Or like, oh, I'm going to be so wide open and win win so quickly and so devastatingly on my route that you got a five-yard window to throw in, man. Like, let's make it easy for you. I, I do think that really matters there. But I thought, I just, I don't know. I think it almost like raises Bryce Young's Heisman case to a degree. Nathan, of there's sometimes, sure. and I've said this a lot of times with like Ohio State players when they leave, your greatest appreciation for a great player is what it looks like when he's not there. And you know, I think Ohio State maybe you felt that a little bit like in in 2019 when Chase Young was suspended for a couple games. I said I've always felt it like when Ted Ginn Jr. left, and it was like, oh no, there's not another one of those guys. Okay, well, no, that was special. We knew it at the time, but you really knew it after the fact because you thought a next Ted Jr. was coming, and there's only one Ted Ginn Jr. There's only one Bryce Young, man. And like Milrow might be the quarterback next year and and they got to get that figured out for next year. Maybe, maybe it'll be somebody else. I don't know. But in that moment, um, even on a team that's the best, they're the best recruiters in the nation. They have the most talent in the nation. They have sort of been who they've been the last two years because of an absolutely singular talent at the most important position. And it was a reminder. I, I want to do the opposite of this a little bit because we're going to get through the high state part. But Kansas, Jalen Daniels, who's looked awesome, right? In the Heisman mix, the way Kansas has gotten off to that start. He gets hurt in the last minute of the first quarter. You know what uh, their backup quarterback does? He's awesome. The Kansas backup quarterback goes crazy in the second half. Um, in the first half, Kansas scored three points. In the second half, they scored 28 points. They didn't do anything with Jalen Daniels, the Heisman candidate, early on. And then you put in Jason Bean, and he was 16 of 24 for 262 and four touchdowns in the second half as a backup quarterback, and they almost won against the top 15 team in TCU. You know why? Because Jason Bean started 16 games the previous two years. He was the starter in uh, 2020 and 2021. 
And then he lost his job. It's like, oh, no, I've got to go to a backup quarterback. So you got me and the guy who started for two years. And he was like, right. let's go. I probably should be the guy anyway. And it's a reminder that, you know, not all backup quarterbacks are created equal. But I would, I think the five-star second-year player who is on track to be your starting quarterback is the perfect backup quarterback. Perfect. I could even argue that a that a true freshman, a first year five star who was on track to be your starter, I you could argue that guy is your perfect backup too. Like, well, I I hope we don't have to use him. He's a true freshman, but also like, well, you know, in year two, you think he's the way our the way our pecking order goes, we think he's going to start. But if you can even just like push that off slightly, Kyle McCord and Jalen Milrow are and Jake Garcia at Miami and all these other guys, Miller Moss at USC, they're perfect backup quarterbacks. But also, man, sometimes you want Jason Bean, brother. It's like, oh, who's your backup quarterback? The benched starter yeah. with 16 career starts who is unshakable and like out to prove to people that he still should be the starter. And he was great on Saturday for Kansas, and they almost won. Well, that first question you asked me, I don't think that actually applies to Kansas. You asked me about a great team playing a good team. Should you still win with your backup quarterback? Kansas is not a great team. Kansas is a fine team that won the games it needed to win early. If, if you're voting based on just wins and losses in the AP poll like I was, you moved Kansas up quite a bit over these past couple weeks. And TCU as well. They're similar, similar resume. And but but Kansas is the kind of team that I think, oh, you lost you what do you mean? Yeah, you lost your backup quarterback and then you lost or you lost your starting quarterback and then you lost the game. Because my God, Kansas is lucky to have one competent quarterback at a time right now. I mean, they've been one of the worst programs in power five for what what, what was that date you said before two thousand eight? Like it's been a minute. So yeah. Kudos to them for having just that situation that that worked out very well, and then they've obviously worked the portal too, and it, it it's helped them. But no, you should you can't like you can't plan for that kind of backup quarterback is the thing, right? Right? It's like you know what's the idea? Like if you were saying like maybe maybe the perfect backup quarterback is your benched veteran starter, but it's like well how do you do that? So well, you can't plan for that. They kind of were prepared for it when it happened, and you but you saw the results of when that happens to be your dude. And I was going to say, it's harder than ever because of the portal. Yes. Because the backup, the, the, you don't have a benched former starter that typically sticks around. Sometimes you don't even have the guy who was supposed to get the job who then sticks around. Uh, that there, There's there's a usually a time limit on how long that guy's going to wait before you then turn the job over to him. So that's why I think you were right. I was going to, that was a, when I paused there, I was trying to get back to that, that I agree with you that the comma cord situation, what, what Michigan had last year with JJ McCarthy. And then now having turned it over to him, what they had, what Penn state has with drew Aller, like those are what great programs are supposed to be doing with their quarterback room. That worst case scenario, a guy that you think will be in the conversation to be the best quarterback in the country in a year or two, has to get the ball in his hands a little bit earlier than you were planning for. But is still, at the end of the day, I think getting the ball in the hands of talent is the differentiator. And it, it, you could say that that's what happened yeah. for Ohio State in in 2014. That, you know, Cardell Jones wasn't supposed to be the starting quarterback, but there was a talent there. Um, it, it, we're getting a little bit off because he wasn't, I guess, you know, 
recruited that quite to that level and everything, but like it was still you got the ball in the hands of talent as opposed to um, just giving the ball to a, a retread or a, a a guy who was destined to be a career backup and hoping it worked out. So just real quick on on some backup quarterback context around the country, Carson Beck, who is another highly recruited guy, is the backup quarterback at Georgia. Um, just again for for. For the context of Kyle McCord, we think he should play more. 12 of 16, 157 yards for Kyle McCord this year. He's been in five of the games. He's thrown passes in four of the the five games that he's been into. But he's two for two, two for three, five for seven uh, was the, the biggest blowout, and then three for four. So, like, he's he's never really gotten, like, a good run other than and, – and the, he had the 72-yard touchdown pass to Jaden Ballard on the kind of the simple yeah. little throw that, that gave him most of his yards this year. I guess that's almost – like he's getting close to having like a start's worth of reps just spread over five games, six games. Yeah, and again, I mean, context matters. Carson Beck for Georgia, he is 15 of 19 for 178. Again, Kyle McCord's – what did I say? 12 of 12, 16. Um, 16 for 157. I mean, that's basically the same. Yeah. Carson Beck has played in three games. It feels like he's played in three games and gotten like kind of better run in the three games he's gotten in. He's five of six for 71, five of seven for 52, five of six for 55. Like he's as it, like the overall numbers are the same, but Kyle McCord's gotten like smaller morsels more often where Carson Beck like seems like he got like maybe two good series in three different games when Georgia had blowouts. Um, Milrow was 12 of 19 before he played this game. So his action was not much more than Kyle McCord, although he had run it a lot. He had 17 carries for 83 yards. And again, they want him to run. That's part of his game. So he had Milrow had more action than McCord this year, not quadruple the action, but but definitely more. Cade Klubnick, the backup true freshman at Clemson behind DJ Uyunglele, who everybody was like on alert if DJ's bad, go to him, has barely played. He's 7 of 15 for 66. So he's played less than Kyle McCord this year. Now, Clemson has been in a bunch of barn burners. The thing for Ohio State is like everything other than Notre Dame has been a blowout. So it feels like they've had more opportunities to play, to let Kyle McCord cook a little bit that they maybe haven't taken advantage of. Talking about having a former starter as your backup quarterback, Joe Milton is the backup at Tennessee. Joe Milton, the former Michigan quarterback who transferred to Tennessee, who has played there. He's backing up Hendon Hooker, 12 of 14 for 225. He's In the two uh, Mac blowouts they had, he got a little bit of run. USC's backup quarterback barely has played. Oklahoma State's backup quarterback, who happens to be the coach's son, Mike Gundy's son, Gunner, he has barely played. And then uh, Drew Aller, 13 of 19 for 163. Penn State's played a couple closer games lately. Um, he was 2 of 5 for 20 against Central Michigan, 2 of 2 for 29 against Auburn, 6 of 8 for 88 against Ohio. That was actually the second game of the year when it felt like, oh, I don't know, maybe they need to get Drew Aller ready to start. 2 of 4 for 26 against Purdue. So Aller's played a little bit more, but it's kind of similar to Kyle McCord. But again, uh, Penn State hasn't blown the doors off people to quite the extent that Ohio State has. So in the national context, what Kyle McCord has done is not drastically behind. It's really kind of in the normal range of what backup quarterbacks have done. But one of the issues is, you know, C.J. Stroud's not going to be here next year, right? Sean Clifford might stick around. I don't know, right? Like Caleb Williams is going to be at USC next year, right? Like some of these schools, they don't have to be thinking a year ahead. 
But then what we wanted to bring into relief right now is you never know. Everybody's one snap away. Right. Everybody's one in alien abduction away from playing right now. And so that conversation of are other backup quarterbacks at top 10 programs more ready right now than Kyle McCord would be? I think Joe Milton at Tennessee probably would qualify for that. And and not really anybody else would be more prepared than Kyle McCord because his numbers are kind of the norm and he's the perfect backup quarterback, as we already said. So, But, but th- th- this conversation has really shifted for me a little bit. Because I think early on when we were talking about does McCord need to get more real snaps, really run the offense – we were talking about it so much in 2023, be like, oh, we don't want to hear Ryan Day next spring talking about how he hasn't played very much, hasn't thrown very many passes, like that's on Ryan Day. But really, this past week, I came all the way back around, and the Bryce Young example was a little bit what did it for me, was like, is Kyle McCord ready to win a game for Ohio State this year, an important game? Like, go on the road and beat Penn State with Kyle McCord. Like, can you do that right now? And do you need to get him more real reps to help ensure that you can do that? And does Ryan Day not playing him and not giving him those opportunities, is it an indication that he is concerned about exposing him because he doesn't think he's ready? Or is it a sign that he is confident that he can do it and doesn't see the need to press the action any more than he has? Again, a couple couple years ago when Trevor Lawrence was out with COVID and Clemson had to put in DJ Uyunglele as a true freshman, then they went to Notre Dame and he threw for like 400 yards and Notre Dame won, but like it was like, oh no, DJ DJ was ready and they ran a great game plan for him. I think a bunch of RPOs could use his legs, made a lot of really good throws and looked completely prepared. I think the answer here probably, Nathan, is maybe again, other than Joe Milton, who's who's played before, I don't know that any of the backup quarterbacks for the best teams are ready. So well, yeah, it's you, the context of like, right. I don't, I don't know that Kyle McCord would be ready to beat a top twenty-five team this year, but neither was Jalen Milrow, and they escaped by the skin of their teeth. And I'm not sure that Carson Beck would be. I'm not sure that Miller Moss would be. I'm not sure that any that I'm not sure that Cade Klubnik would be. Right? I, I don't know that anybody would be because that's not what is happening even in the blowouts like they're not getting a ton a ton a ton of runs so yeah and i think it always brings the conversation back around to it's a weird dichotomy because quarterback's the most important position on the field you go recruit that position the way ohio state has because as ryan day has said like people thought it was weird that he was stacking up five stars every year and he's like well what if i'm wrong about one like you've always got to have a lot of options there and you deal with the portal whatever the ramifications are but so you've got to have elite play at that position. But in the scenario we're talking about, while that quarterback still has to be competent, still has to be able to do something, can't go out there and lose you the game, I think even in a almost more talent-equated situation, I believe it almost comes back more to, is the rest of your team good enough to win the game if you take a step back at quarterback? The other thing to remember, too, though, is how much better is that opponent's starting quarterback, especially in the Big Ten, than Kyle McCord is. Yeah, and that's what we're going to do right now. That's what we're going to do right now. When you think about the rest of the team in a backup quarterback situation, what would that look like for Ohio State? We'll do that next on Buckeye Talk. 
All right, so we want to drill down on this again. The way we do this show, we do like a, a national segment, we do an Ohio State segment, and then we do what you're watching, what you're eating, what you're thinking at the end. If they needed to do this, Nathan, again, this is a differentiator, I think, than at least the Alabama situation with in terms of the skill guys. They leaned on Jameer Gibbs, and he did what he needed to do. But in terms of leaning on your receivers right now, Marvin Harrison Jr. leads the nation with nine touchdown receptions. Emeka Egbuka is tied for 10th with six touchdown receptions. Emeka Egbuka, Egbuka is fourth in the nation in receiving yards per game with 109.2. Marvin, Marvin Harrison Jr. is 22nd. I did it. Yep. Is 20. I also call him Emeka Egbuka. <laughs> right. Marvin even... Harrison Jr. is 22nd. I know. You know, that, you know that G is silent, too. It's like Egbuka. Egbuka? Yeah. Okay. 22nd in the nation with 89 receiving yards per game. So this has been without the guy who was viewed as the best receiver in the country coming into this season. They both have absolutely slid into their roles. That context, those receivers, Ryan Day is a play caller, Mayan Williams and Travion Henderson in the run game, this offensive line, would that lead us to believe? And this is this is not a conversation of Oh, well, CJ Stroud's just a product of his environment and is a product of the talent around him. That is not at all what we're saying. We're saying you take out what certainly looks like the best quarterback in the country. You take him out, what would be your chances of playing well and surviving and winning against a good team? How much confidence would that inspire? Because how how easy would Emeka and Marvin make it for Kyle McCord or Devin Brown or anybody? who had to go in and win this, which again, I think goes back to the conversation. Cardell Jones didn't have to do it by himself. He threw up some jump balls to Devin Smith, who's looked like a high jumper. Michael Thomas was there. Evan Spencer was there. You hand the ball to Ezekiel Elliott. A lot of people look really good when you can do that. Would the context around any quarterback at Ohio State right now give them a pretty darn good chance? I think so. Uh, part of it is the receivers, and part of it is what you can do with those receivers that doesn't even involve throwing the ball. Like the way that you can use them in jet sweep situations and the, you know the, the the screen game, like all of that stuff can come into effect and and give your backup quarterback a help him settle into a game. You don't have to come out right from the beginning taking deep shots. You can come in and really sprinkle it around, go horizontal with it, give him like high mass or well protected opportunities to just get the ball in a playmaker's hands, maybe out in space and let them do something with it. So it isn't all just a vertical attack that you can sort of set the foundation with and then play off of that. But the other thing is it's the whole offensive infrastructure right now that would give that guy a chance at success. It's what they're doing in the run game where they're moving a lot of ground and really opening things up and the running backs are running well. And then it's the play action killer off of the run game. I thought they did that pretty well against Michigan State. There was a like a really critical juncture this game. Um, oh, it was it was on it was right before the Ibuka touchdown, the sixty nine yard touchdown in the first half. So coming off of the pick six, um, Ohio State runs with Henderson. Michigan State blows it up really well. It was you know I thought it was a really smart job by Michigan State. Their safety read the play really well because Ohio State a lot of times will load up one side or send motion to the other side and then run it back the other way. He read it really well, stayed home, and took Henderson down for a loss. The next play, it's second and eleven. They do a pitch 
and Henderson just goes straight ahead, the way people think Mayan Williams only runs, just runs straight ahead to the hole, gets seven yards, and so now it's third and four. They come out and then hit the bomb to Abuka off of off of play action because teams have to still respect the run. And I think that ultimately is what gives Kam Accord a great chance of success if he has to go in for Stroud is that they can still establish the run and play off of that. McCord doesn't have to come out and win this game with his arm alone. In, in talking to the receivers after after the game, and I was looking up PFF numbers, and you know, I mean, I guess they they weren't as uh, spectacular as maybe I had envisioned the last two years with the lack of drops from the Ohio State receivers. It's just in my head, Jaden Reed, Michigan State's best receiver, who's their best player, I think, and it's it's not even close. Came out, made a catch early in that game, Nathan, and was sort of talking some trash to the Ohio State defense, and then I thought like had two drops maybe the next two times that Michigan State threw the ball to him. And there's just nothing like hitting a guy in the chest for what should be a first down and him dropping the ball. Or or on first and ten, what should be a nice eight yard gain and keep you on on track and a guy drops it. And I just I just don't feel like again I asked Ryan Day about it and he was like, oh my God, I can't believe why are you asking me about this? Like you guys don't drop the ball. They make the yeah. <laughs> routine plays, but they also make the spectacular plays. Yeah. But he was like, I'm jinx. I, yeah, I, was say, like, I don't mean to jinx you. I don't mean to jinx surprised you. Surprised he didn't like, say, thanks, Jinxie McJinkerson. Yeah, I know. I get it. We got to be able to talk about stuff. But yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I understand. But, you know, like Marvin Harrison Jr. is making that catch. You know, like I said, it's like a back ankle throw. I don't know that I've ever. <laughs> it wasn't a back <laughs> shoulder. Like he caught it with yeah, his foot. Yeah. I don't know how he did that. Um, but. But they also just if you if they're running a crossing route and you hit these guys in the hands, they catch it. There is just not that deflating. We did everything right. The guy was open. Should have been a first down, and they dropped it. And like, there's just a certainty I think that applies to the Ohio State passing game in addition to the spectacular. And and I do feel like, and I felt like again when you watch the 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 Texas A and M receivers. Haynes King wasn't great, but they were bailing him out at times. And I do like great, great receivers. And so we said after the game, the only probably the only passing attack in the nation that could really make Ohio State fearful about its corner play is the Ohio State passing attack. But that is such again, Devin Smith was so important to helping Cardale Jones in that moment, right? And I just do think that the the way this receiver room operates, nobody takes it for granted because we all realize it. And a year ago, there was some sort of debate of, well, you know, is CJ really that good or is it really Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson and Jackson Smith and Jigben? They're open all the time. And we certainly realize there's no debate now. CJ plays a hugely important role for this. But I think if the backup quarterback came in, Nathan, and throwing behind guys a little bit and maybe a little late on a throw or whatever. I still think the offense would work because I think the receivers would pick them up. A word that keeps coming into my mind, like as I was rewatching the game and as I just think about this team is security. And it, it definitely applies on defense, what they've done, setting a foundation now, stopping the run and how they're playing off of that. But it, it applies on offense too. Anecdotally, and I don't have numbers in front of me. I have not been tracking this. I think there've been fewer drops through these first six games 
than what they were experiencing last year, even with Olave and Wilson. I felt like there were more, and they those guys were not butterfingers by any means. I'm not trying to revision this history that these guys were dropping balls all over the place. But there were a couple where we thought they were like very catchable balls that they, they turn up field too soon or whatever. And I'm not saying that hasn't happened at all this year. It just feels certainly no worse than last year where they had two top 12 NFL draft picks and Jackson Smith and Jigba as the guys catching these passes and over these first six games, like the one thing that really stands out to you, there was a play Marvin Harrison junior front of the end zone and he didn't come down with a tough ball. And that's like, that stands out as like a drop that Ohio state had. And otherwise, like you're saying, it's any ball that CJ Stroud throws. I think he expects it to be caught. And one of the telling number, one of the telling quotes after the game I thought was him describing that throw to Marvin Harrison. And it wasn't the one in the end zone, actually. I think it might've been when he was talking about the third down sideline over the shoulder grab earlier where Michigan state was bringing the pressure and he just turned and threw it. He had some really good throws with, with guys in his face or the offensive line getting pushed back on him. I thought in this game, but he said where he said about something about 50, 50 balls. He said, well, actually it's more like 70, 30. Like that's the way he thinks of those, like things that another receiver where it would be, oh, you know, it's it's one or the other, but we'll give him a shot. He's actually saying like, no, it's I, I think more like seven out of ten times this catch that most people can't make, we're gonna make it. That ha- that gives you just it changes the way I think you play quarterback when you think that your guys are gonna win on the ball to that kind of ratio. Yeah, um, I do think it. That's a, a good way to think about it, like the 70-30 balls. And and I just you just think they would figure out it was funny, like Ryan Day, someone tried to ask Ryan Day about one of like Marvin Harrison Jr.'s I think they were trying to ask about the sideline catch, the over the shoulder sideline catch. But Ryan Day thought they were talking about that back shoulder back ankle catch. And it's like it's one of these things that's like, oh, there's too many spectacular catches. Right. The the head coach can't keep them straight. Right. You know? It's like, wait, which which amazing, unbelievable catch that made me say, holy moly, are we talking about? So, um, yeah, it's just like, it's a, it's a really, it has certainly, it, it wasn't great in week one. It was not great in week one. And, but it has been a very high level room. And this lingering thing, Nathan, that as Ohio State's entering this off week, what do you think is going to happen? And we'll have plenty of time to talk about this for the next two weeks. What do you think it's going to look like when Jackson Smith and Jigba is back? My guess is that Jackson Smith and Jigba goes back in the slot, 80% of the snaps, and Emeka now becomes the, the main outside guy at Z, and Marvin stays where he is, and then Julian becomes the fourth guy. And maybe they move Emeka around a little bit. But, you know, again, Emeka, Ibuka is the number four receiver in the nation. Like, that guy is got to stay on the field. It, it's, it is a little bit weird to think about how good this, how good this passing game has been knowing that the number one guy has not played. It is, it is a little hard to wrap your head around. It's factored into why I think Ohio state deserves to be ranked number one. As we talked about last week, that a presence like Jackson Smith and Jigba is not on the field right now and they're still doing what they're doing. I mean, there was a, the first touchdown catch that Marvin Harrison Jr. had against Michigan State was, well, there were actually a couple examples of this, but this one comes to mind, where he and Ibuka are lined up on the same side of the field. Ibuka runs the inside route. The safety stays with the inside guy and it leaves that one-on-one coverage for Marvin Harrison Jr. And we are increasingly seeing that one-on-one coverage from an 
adequate defensive back on Marvin Harrison Jr. is a recipe for disaster. So that's just with Emeka Buka taking the attention. Now put Emeka Buka on the other side and split time with Julian Fleming, whatever, and now have that guy on the inside beat Jackson Smith and Jigba. And where if the coverage is tight on Marvin Harrison Jr., you still now have the option of going to Smith and Jigba, probably in a way that you don't always with Ibuka, because I think Smith and Jigba is still just a little bit better of a route runner and things like that at this stage of his career. The, the possibilities are are already endless, and now they're even more endless. It's like it's like you got to the edge of space and then found out, no, there's more space. And it will be really interesting. We know that teams have been sort of trying, right, to drop more guys and, and maybe make them run the ball. It'll be really interesting to see how the run game reacts to that situation because maybe they'll drop 10. I don't yeah. know, just like leave leave the nose guard there, <laughs> drop 10, and then say go ahead and run. It is the one thing – I was going to bring this up before. It's the one way – because I think teams will rightly respect Stroud more than they respect – whoever you throw back there, comma cord, whatever backup quarterback, right? So right now, a big part of this team's offensive success is taking what the defenses are willing to give them as far as dropping those guys back and then saying, all right, we'll just take eight yard chunks from Henderson or Williams until the time that you bite on play action and it's good night. Like, but that might be less frequent with McCord. That teams may not drop eight in those situations. Now, as much as they respect the re- receivers, they would probably take a more, well, prove it to us before we do that stance, which I think would be the prudent way. If I was coordinating a defense, which no one's asking me to do, but if I was coordinating a defense, that's probably what I would do too. I would make, it would be a more standard coverage scheme in the secondary. I might bring more pressure because I don't know that McCord would kill me when he sees that pressure coming the way Stroud has proven that he can, it's it, 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 comic cord would have to go through a prove it stage. And it might, again, if you're only talking about one game, that's a little bit tougher because CJ Stroud had to prove it too. And it took him a little bit to, to do it in real time. So coming back to that one conversation, it, it's going to depend a little bit on the, the level of the opponent and what they can, how they can attack Ohio state because if it takes Comacord a couple of tries to like to get that same level of recognition, you've only got one game to work with before a loss could happen. So it's the one thing that I'd, I I can't completely answer in this equation because I think teams will defend Ohio State very differently than they have are defending them right now with so much of C.J. Stroud's baseline to have to account for. And it is interesting with any new quarterback, right? Whether it's would be Kyle McCord in the situation this year or Kyle McCord as a starter that you assume next year. I think JJ McCarthy and Jalen Milrow as two guys in the same class as Kyle McCord are good examples. Like they they run around. You know, JJ McCarthy is freelancing. JJ McCarthy is is spinning and turning his back to the line of scrimmage and and making plays out of structure and keeping plays alive for good and bad. You know, Jalen Milrow is is really dangerous with the ball in his hands, but he also fumbled twice, right? And, that, and McCarthy had that a couple weeks ago where it's like, okay, we understand you're trying to make a play. Like, hold on to the freaking ball. And and I think, I don't, I think ideally, I, if you ask, like, why did Ryan Day take Kyle McCord ahead of J.J. McCarthy, even though we might think of Kyle McCord as more of a gunslinger or that kind of thing, I don't know that he's that. 
No. Right. And I think I think Ryan Day is and that was always like the push and pull with Justin Fields and his great ability to keep plays alive and that kind of thing. That I think you know, Ryan Day wants that guy in structure to be able to like diagnose and and make an accurate throw. But then sometimes when you're young and you're new at that, you're not as likely to bail yourself out with your innate athleticism the way J.J. McCarthy and, and Jalen Milrow both are doing that right now. Um, and I do think sometimes we do still have sort of a, a hard time wrapping our head around how much is C.J.'s ability to sort of figure out what's going on, creating the situations where it looks like guys are running pretty wide open, but they're wide open because of what CJ did. You know, he gave them, he, they, they're in the right protection and he, you know, moved the linebacker or the safety with his eyes, all that kind of stuff that um, you can't take for granted. I, I do just think sometimes it's hard to get a handle on exactly how CJ Stroud's brain is influencing what's happening. And then maybe if you put any quarterback in there who wasn't quite doing that, you'd be like, Oh no, no, that was it. Oh, Okay. Everyone's a little more covered now because maybe it's not CJ at the controls. Okay. I think in general, and again, it's like one of those, you, everybody can be knocking on any kind of piece of wood you can find out here. It's like a backup quarterback conversation. Why would you have a backup quarterback conversation? Because Alabama just had to do it. That's why we did it. But in the end, um, it, it it is, Nathan, I think receivers, play caller, offensive line, it's a about as good of an infrastructure as you could hope for, right? It's still going to be on the guy, but it's about as much support as you could put around a quarterback to say, I think we have a chance to be okay. Is that where our general final vibe is? I, yeah, until a team dis- shows that it can stop Ohio State from gashing out rushing yards the way it is now, within reason, I don't know that it matters a whole lot who is quarterbacking in terms of beating the teams left on this schedule. I say that hesitantly because I think Penn State and Michigan are, are pretty strong, but I think you can figure out a way just to win the game. Not win it 42-20, to 20, but win the game. Yeah. Just find a way to win the game, and sometimes that's supposed to be hard. And I'm not, I, I, I may be completely underestimating where Common Court is right now when I say that, but we don't know for sure because we haven't really had a good look at Comacord in a under under duress in a stressful situation, and uh, it, it probably won't come. If it comes this season, it sure seems like it's going to come in the scenario we're presenting. It's not going to come in just he's out there with the first string offense against a first string defense. If it does, if it's either going to happen in the scenario we're talking about, or it's going to happen September whatever next fall. Let's do one more football thing before we get to what you're watching, what you're eating. That does fit in this Ohio State context. I think we talked about it. I know you were texting about it uh, with our tech subscribers, 614-350-3315. It's been interesting to watch um, Micah Parsons at the NFL level just take over the league in a lot of ways. And that he is this sort of linebacker rush end hybrid that at times you want to let him be sort of like an off-ball linebacker and go make plays. And at times, you want him on the line of scrimmage, rushing rushing the passer. And whatever he is, he is incredibly disruptive. And I think they were doing an MVP chant at him um, the other day. And he is just um, one of the more impactful young defensive players that we have seen in the NFL in recent years. And it remains interesting that like that's a guy that Ohio State could have had, probably. Could have had, and we all remember like the recruiting incident. Oh, he went on the game day set, and you can't do that, and that was a problem. But it really, I think, was just an excuse for Ohio State 
was just a little unsure about that recruitment and decided to back off. And that was, he was a class of 2018 guy. And I think one of the things is they had a guy that I think a lot of people thought like, oh, well, they have a guy like that already in the class of 2017, which is Baron Browning. And now it's funny, like as it's, it's, it's interesting that, that Micah Parsons is maybe going to wind up being like one of the best players that Ohio State could have had and sort of didn't get and almost like chose not to get that I've ever seen. And I'm not saying that it was necessarily a wrong decision, but man, he could have helped here. And I think they just were, they had a couple questions about some things. And and sometimes if you have a few questions, um, maybe you're better off. And it, But it worked out great, right? I mean, he sat out his last year at Penn State because of COVID, but the guy is an unbelievable player and has not had any problems. So like it's like Michael Parsons has had a great career. But I don't know how often I thought at the time in college, Nathan, but it almost feels like now maybe Baron Browning in the NFL can be like Michael Parsons light. And that the the Broncos are, are he had a big game on Thursday night. They're starting to figure out like, well, is he a linebacker? Is he a rush end? Well, like sort of just put him in position to succeed. And, you know, the conversation about whether Michael Parsons should have been a Buckeye, that's like a minor conversation. The conversation about whether Baron Browning should have been a more impactful player at Ohio State. It's, it's been a pretty major conversation for years here. And it was interesting, I think, to watch him play well and then watch people react to it because kind of what he's doing now in the NFL, we never really saw at Ohio State. And a lot of people were wishing that we did see it and wish that he was used the way he's being used now. We had a lot of conversations in 2020 before, during, and after that season about personnel whether Ohio State had the defensive personnel necessary to have a strong defense. And the Baron Browning experience this past week is the game was on Thursday night and people started texting us like, are you watching this? Like Baron Browning's out here like wrecking dudes. Like he's playing, like they were dropping like Bosa-like comparisons. (laughs) Like he's out here being a real NFL edge rushing threat. And is it like just kind of adding to this uh, the sentiment already out there that he was a little bit wasted at Ohio State? And it made me think about 2020. Now that we see Jim Knowles come in and rethink the way that they use guys, would that 2020 defense, even with the personnel that they had, like adding adding no one? And you have to, you know, I know obviously the COVID situation threw things off, especially in the national championship game against Alabama. But just the, the the base of talent that we knew that they had, the guys who were on the roster, how much better would that defense been if it had been coordinated by Jim Knowles simply because he would have just made just a couple of things, pull a couple guys here, there. And I thought one of the examples was you take that defense, you only start two linebackers, and now you work in the jack. And Baron Browning, I think, would have been a fantastic Jack. You could have called hmm. it the Red Baron. Yeah, the the Scarlet and, and oh, the, yeah. the Scarlet Baron. Like um, he would have been an incredible Jack. And then now I think a team that really had pass rush problems that year. The I, I tweeted, I texted about sack rate and wrote about it last week. And that sack rate that that Ohio State team had is one of the lowest sack rates of any team that ever made the playoff in the eight years of the playoff. And three of the examples were from like the first year of the playoff and one of the other ones was with one of those terrible Oklahoma defenses. Like that, that team didn't really get after the passer that much. And we saw Baron Browning get a sack in the national championship game against Mac Jones. Like if you had taken him and put him up there and 
then what? Then the question just became, how do you solve the secondary? Because it all works in, in tandem. But would Jim Knowles have... I think it all comes down to, again, to would you have told Sean Wade that he was an outside corner or would you have told Sean Wade that he needed to still be the cover safety, the, the, the nickel safety, whatever. But I also think that if you solve the pass rush a little bit on that team, it makes all those DBs better. So just that one little switch, if you had found a way to more creatively. So, I mean, I actually guess that's the answer, really, looking back on it. There was nothing stopping that coaching staff from more creatively using Baron Browning than what they did. And we floated it at the time, but we knew that they also weren't going to do it. They were going to keep playing three linebackers. He was going to keep being the Sam. Uh, that was just how it was. If, if they had found a way to maybe more creatively use him to his natural talents, it would have made that defense better. It's uh, And it's interesting. I know just just to make sure we have the right context on this. I I thought it was interesting. Bill or Jim, Jim Knowles was asked last week about, does it help your linebackers that you're the defensive coordinator, that their position coach is the defensive coordinator? And he was saying like, well, you know, we talk a lot about sort of the whole structure of the defense. So it does give them a bigger picture because we're talking about that because like I'm in charge of the defense. And, I don't know. I don't know if surprise is the right word, but I originally thought like I don't know why they are even having Knowles coach a position, right? Like let him just be the schemer and you know punt the special teams coach and get a linebackers coach and do whatever. But Knowles wanted to coach the linebackers, and it seems like he's a really good linebackers coach. Like like get, step away from the fact that stop, forget the scheme. The linebackers are playing well. He is doing things. He is using Tommy Eichenberg and Steel Chambers in a way that they have elevated their game. They are downhill. They are attacking. They they look like more confident, athletic linebackers than they did a year ago. And I think a lot of that, that some of that scheme, but some of that is just being coached. And I do think just, again, Baron Browning was recruited by Luke Fickle, and then Luke Fickle was out of here before Baron Browning got here. In 17 and 18, his position coach, Bill Davis, was a longtime linebackers coach, but was an NFL guy who, in the end, had no idea how to relate to college players. And then in 19 and 20, his position coach was Al Washington, who I think knew how to relate to college players, but wasn't really a linebackers coach. Mm-hmm. Al, Al, Al Washington was a defensive lineman in college, and as a coach... Before he got to Ohio State, he had been a defensive line coach for six years. He'd been a running backs coach for three years, and he'd only been a a linebackers coach for two years. One of them at Michigan, as Michigan's linebackers coach the year before. But that's different than Luke Fickle, who also was a defensive lineman in college, but then had coached linebackers for a decade. That's different than Luke Fickle, and it's different than Jim Knowles. And I think Baron Browning, in that way, to me, will always be sort of one of the great lost talents of Ohio State football. And I think that is a it is a direct reflection of that. I think if Baron Browning had had Luke Fickle, I think if Baron Browning had had Jim Knowles, and then again, Greg Schiano playing the linebackers the way he played them was screwing everybody up, right? He screwed up Pete Warner. People think Pete Warner is like one of the 10 best players in the NFL right now. Pete Warner makes every tackle that the New Orleans Saints make. And Ohio State screwed him up for a while. It is a it is a lost era of linebacker play. And when you when you add in the Parsons wrinkle, right? That we we spent a lot of time before you were here Nathan of like, why are their linebackers not good? And while we were having that conversation, they had Pete Warner and Baron Browning, who it turns out are good. 
They just didn't look that good here because of what the coaches did to them. And by the way, they had a, they probably could have had Micah Parsons, who turned out to be one of the best defensive players, linebacker slash defensive end in college and now in the NFL. And that era was defined by complaints about Ohio State's linebacker play. It is, it is crazy to think about. And listen, I'm not letting Bill Davis off the hook. You know better than I do. I wasn't here at the time, but I saw the results that, that came after it. And I'm not letting Kerry Combs off the hook for how that defense was coordinated completely for those two years. But like Ryan Day also had a big say in why that defense looked the way it did in 2020 and 2021. Like there was a rigidity that he asked for in terms of scheme. And that's ultimately why I keep coming back to you would have needed someone like Jim Knowles to be in place, but someone like Jim Knowles wasn't in place until Ryan Day was ready to put someone like Jim Knowles in place, which involved letting go a little bit of what he thought he wanted in a defense. So it's, it's another example of how giving someone like Jim, putting a head coach of the defense in charge and letting that guy like put his staple on the program uh, is paying off right now for Ohio State because right now we don't look around this defense and think what are they doing with this guy like this doesn't make sense we're looking at this defense and thinking like is is like Tommy Eichenberg look at what has happened I mean in some ways we've talked a lot about Tommy Eichenberg in some ways we haven't talked enough about him to go from a guy that we were like well yeah of course he got beat out for being the Mike linebacker last year like we were surprised he was starting in the first place. That that seemed like an experiment that went the way it was supposed to when Cody Simon took the job. And now it's like, oh, is he maybe the Big Ten Defensive Player of the Year or a, a serious candidate for it? And is he going to be in a mid-round NFL draft pick next year and leave, quote-unquote, early to go to the NFL draft? Like, we were not having anything in the galaxy of that conversation about Tommy Eikenberg a year ago. And it's all about a defensive coordinator coming in and, yes, maybe coaching up that position group a little bit. I'm not saying not. But a lot of it is just a defensive quarter coming in and finding a new uh, and and having a a process to attack with that is based in his core concepts as opposed to um, the 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 broader concepts that the head coach wants, whether or not it fits the personnel. All right, when we come back, what you're watching, what you're eating, what you're thinking on Buckeye Talk. All right, Nathan Baird, what you're watching? We have been looking for a new like wind down show we like to just have like we go more like sitcoms and stuff to wind down and we've cycled through several of them recently so we gave abbott elementary a chance and it's more of a Hmm, we don't watch a lot of network shows i would say we tend more towards oh you're so highfalutin well well, uh, a lot of them are terrible still trend towards the network a lot of them are really bad uh because they're for a broader audience and they're not maybe as edgy as we would like and Abbott Elementary, I'll have to say, I had to give it a while because it started off a little flat for me, but it's starting to grow on me. I'm coming around. Uh, I don't actually care about the characters enough yet, so we'll see if that happens. But it, I'm at least in, I'm at least finding it funnier as we get into the start of the second season than I did at the start of the first season. So if anybody wants to give this show a chance, it's about uh, like an inner city Philadelphia school sitcom base there. Uh, I, I have come around on the humor. My parents were teachers, so maybe I have a little bit of a connection there, although they certainly were not in inner city Philadelphia. They were a far outer city, uh, cow pasture, Illinois, but still a, a profession that I respect. I think they hit some good notes of humor, just of how tough life can be for teachers and the frustrations that they go through and being like really, really earnest in a profession that can make you very jaded. 
Uh, and it, it, it's a fun show. So if you're looking for something a little bit lighthearted, maybe a little bit more family-friendly than the average show that we'll come on here and talk about, such as the uh, House of Dragons conversation from a couple weeks ago, give Abbott Elementary a try. Yeah, I'm working my way through Abbott Elementary as yeah. well. I'm not to the second season yet. It is, um, it is at least in the first season, it's more like amusing and, and amusing than like laugh out loud yes. hilarious. Yes, right. Yes. And it's like, and it's like, um, there's I like there's multiple characters that I like. And again, I can't think of the creator's name. She's the star and the creator. Like that is always like blows my mind. Of like you wrote, yeah, you created a show and you're writing a show and now you're there's- the star of it. Like you are. A maniac like how do you do that what talent you have and so like credit to her for that there's one critical character there's a principal on the show like everybody else is like a dedicated teacher and really cares about their job sometimes almost like too much and then the principal is supposed to be it's it's supposed to be i think a take on like any other workplace show where the person in charge whether that's like Ron Swanson, who was just very like anti-government even though he was a government guy on Parks and Rec or Michael Scott on the office who was just a, a incompetent like it's supposed to be like the same kind of thought here the principal is sort of the anti of all the everybody else i did not find that character funny at first it was a actress that i thought was doing like a really bad tiffany haddish impression basically but that character has gotten better and that has made the show better as i've kept watching it quinta brunson is her name she's 32 yeah, the, yeah. and she's the star of her own network show that she created and is writing is like again Unbelievable. I will say that you've got to do this sometimes with comedies. Like if you watch the beginning of The Office, like yeah. not great. Parks and Rec also. Right? Yeah. Like took a while to find their footing. Parks and Rec, not great. I, I watched that. I remember watching the pilot of 30 Rock. I thought it was one of the worst pilots I ever saw in my life. And like sometimes with, with comedies, you've got the – we just have like Friends on a loop a lot. The first season of Friends is painful. It is like so overly earnest and weird and – David Schwimmer is just doing like a Woody Allen impersonation. It's like, what is this show? And then they figured it out. So I do think, and a lot of times, you know, in the world now, sometimes they don't give Seinfeld was weird at the beginning, mm-hmm. right? I mean, sometimes the networks don't give comedies time to find their footing, but if you, if you have some good pieces, right. And then you, you start to realize, Hey, we're going to shift, you know, this character's tone 20% more towards this and away from this you can really find something so it sounds like that's what's happening but again it sounds like work sometimes but there's a payoff like if you hang with the show and the network hangs with it and you as an audience hang with it there can be a payoff so maybe that's happening with Abbott Elementary um I will say I very much am like that I'm always looking at we've talked about like the background comedy to have on but I realize I have those on um so much and there's so many things that i want to watch and i'm sort of making myself now try to sit down and say i want to watch this movie but i don't have two hours but i'm going to try to watch it in four half hour chunks Mm. this week and i like made a list of like meryl streep movies i've never seen and like academy award nominees that i've never seen and some tom hanks movies that i've never seen so i watched like this tom hanks is the, the captain of a boat I don't know. Captain Phillips? It's everything Tom Hanks does is World War II. I'd never even... Oh, no. no the, it's the, it's, the, it's the in World War II. He's the captain yeah, of a boat. Yeah. yeah. I'd never even heard of it. And it's just on the battleship the whole yeah, time. It. But it's like I just tried to break it up. So, like, I'm trying to do it. I just started Margin Call, which is like, I guess it's love, a... Love. Uh, love Margin Call. Financial movie? Yes. 
but I know, but is that, I, is that a reasonable thing to do? That's like, I'm just gonna have to watch 40 minutes. Then I'm gonna take a break. I'm gonna come back in three days. But like, if I'm waiting for myself to watch a whole movie, like I'm never going to watch movies. I'm making myself do this rather than just have on an office episode that I've seen 74 times already. So margin call is actually a great movie to try to do that with. Because there are several scenes in that movie. That's one of the best written movies of the last 20 years, probably. I, I think it's just a fantastic movie. and But there are several scenes in that movie that are movies unto themselves. And I actually brought that up on Watch a Watch and Watch Eaton a couple months ago. The scene in There's a scene in a boardroom where you're introduced to the Jeremy Irons character. Have you gotten to that part of the movie yet? I just watched that part, it's, yeah. That is one of my favorite movie scenes of all time. I think every note of that scene is incredible. And there are a bunch of scenes like that in that movie that if you were to just take that scene out and show it to somebody, it would be like taking a piece of a novel and giving it, putting it out as a short story, and it still works. I feel like that almost gives you everything you want to know about the movie. There's a scene later where the Kevin Spacey character then has to like start this the fire sale that this this um, this firm is doing. Don't ruin. But it. I'm just saying, I'm just I'm telling you, you the details. Yet. I'm just telling you that another scene is coming up that that applies the same way. That if you just showed someone this, it would be a movie. It like has all. I, I, I'm I, just, I highly recommend Margin Call. I think it's 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 a very smart movie. It's a very cerebral movie, but it also has enough emotion underlying it that I don't think you get too lost in like the tedium of Wall Street. I think there it's real people, uh, not necessarily good people, but like real people. And um, I find it, I find it, (laughs) I find it very compelling. I I revisit that movie a lot. But is that normal? Like, is this what people do? Like I'm going to watch a two hour movie. It's going to take me four times to watch it. Like, because do people sit down and have two hours to watch a movie? I don't feel like I have two hours in football season to watch a whole movie. That's not what people do the first time they watch a movie. So I never watch movies. Right. I got to watch a movie. I think you've come up with it. I got to watch a movie. I I, I have so many movies that I want to see. But if I wait for movie time with little Dougie, I'm never going to watch them. So I have to treat them like four episodes of a sitcom and then I'll have a chance because there are right. You're working, you're working, you're podcasting, you're in, you're getting ready to cook dinner. You have a half an hour. That happens to me. Like, Hey, here's two hours where you have nothing to do. That does not happen right. to me in football season. Right. So I'm trying to make a conscious decision, but am I going to ruin my movie watching experience by, by doing it in four chunks? No, I don't think so. Generally, I, I, not just with I think you've come call. up with a good hack. I think you've come up with a good hack for this specific circumstance. Because we don't okay. have this problem in February or May or even July. It's really a football season problem for us. And I'm sure other people have jobs that get that busy or lives that get that busy. Right now, having a five-month-old, six-month-old kid changes your math a little bit on the time that you have available for certain things. So... I think you've come up with a good hack. I would say that most people don't do this the first time they watch a movie, but I think people increasingly do this when they rewatch movies. For instance, I've watched that scene in the boardroom from Margin Call probably like 50 times on YouTube since it came out because I think it's just that compelling. And I like to just go back and like live in it a little bit. And I think I would, I do that with a lot of movies probably like, Oh yeah, that scene. And you like, go find that scene and just watch it. They, if you're lucky enough to have that that scene be on YouTube or wherever, so uh, that is a way people consume movies. 
in a way, but not usually the first time through. Because the first time through, you want to just experience the whole movie. All right. What you eating, Baird? Frickers. Hey, Frickers. You, Everybody loves Frickers, right? Yeah. Does everyone love Frickers? I mean, I've driven by. There's a Frickers in Richmond, Indiana that I've driven by there on the interstate, I-70, hundreds of times in my life. You know, having lived in Indiana and had to come east to go visit people or come to Ohio State to cover things. And I never even thought about stopping there. Didn't know what it was, really. But you introduced it to us coming back from Big Ten Media Day a couple months ago. And then I even said to you this weekend, because we were eating at B-dubs after the game Saturday night in Lansing. And I said something. We were like, oh, it's too bad there's not a Frickers up here. And then I'm driving home. And there's a Frickers right there off the interstate. And I, I had to, I yeah. didn't even recognize it at first. I was like, oh, I think that said Frickers on the sign. And I got off at that exit. And it's such a weird word on, on just the little square of a sign. You're like, does that say Frickers? Does it say Fishers? Is it not even a restaurant? But I got there. And then sure enough, it was the Frickers. And that's where I sat and uh, wrote and texted about the AP poll coming out. And got some other work done and ate my chicken chunks and curly fries and watched some NFL games for a little bit before I finished my drive home. It was it was Sylvania, Ohio. I originally texted and said I was in Michigan, mm. but it's actually right across the border, Sylvania, Ohio. Yeah, it is. It, it I, I feel like there was like a meeting of the wing restaurants in Ohio, like the, they divided up territory because Frickers is like Gaten and Toledo, but it's not at all Columbus. Right, but if you're going to, if you're in Columbus and you're driving to Ann Arbor or East Lansing, you definitely you're going to have multiple Frickers opportunities. And if you're in Columbus and driving to Indy, you're going to have multiple Frickers opportunities, which I I take advantage of. Um, and it took me a while actually to figure out that how much I liked Roosters in Columbus because I was like, man, why aren't there any Frickers here? Why isn't there like an equivalent thing? It's like, oh no, there is. It's a, it's a Roosters thing, and I very much like Roosters, but it is the chunk. And I know people, it's just the size of the chicken chunk. It creates a very good meat to sauce ratio. It's completely covered. Like it, it's, I don't know that the, that the sauces to me are that much better. I don't know that like the fries are that much better, but it is the specific size and like the geometry of the diameter of the chicken chunk. Like a rooster's boneless wing is significantly bigger and and it's, still very good but i love the chicken the chunk i love the chunkness of the chicken chunk that i don't know that i have ever encountered at any other wig wings restaurant it's like that specific size to me is what makes it stand out so much it reminds me a little bit of a place that we had in indiana called wings etc you had a wings etc experience before which i think is fine but it's not great yeah, I found it to be always a little bit like greasy, and there was somebody actually texted back to me that was like, "Hey, watch out!" Like I lived close to a Frickers and I liked it for a while, and then it <laughs> then it caught up to me or something like that. So maybe if I experienced, maybe if I was eating it a lot, I would it would start to uh, lose its appeal. But I, I agree with you. I just think it's 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 I just like the atmosphere there too. It was like it was a fun place to go on a Sunday. It's like packed with people watching. Browns or Lions. It was like a really interesting kind of cross section of fandom hmm. there. And then obviously just like people go there for random. Because when you go in, the, the waitress asks you, like, oh, now you want a specific game? 
And uh, being a Bears fan, I was like, no, please don't put me in front of the Bears game because that probably isn't going very well. But I also was I was working more than I was doing. I just needed a table more than I needed to watch a game. But you can they had every game like the logos, you know, every game. So you knew where you could go to watch. It was just a good Sunday setup. So uh, I, I also, though, think. As much as I would like there to be a Frickers in Columbus, it might be a tough fit just because the competition is so tough here from all of the other places that are already here, including Roosters. But, like, there's enough things that are, you know, you've already got B-dubs here and, and other wing chains, the national chains or larger regional chains, and then Roosters on top of that. And then you start sliding in Canes or whatever. Like, Frickers, it would have to be a very specific location to get the foothold it would need, probably. No, but I, that's what I feel like. I feel like they like roosters and frickers agreed. Like, well, you stay there, we'll stay here, and you know, it's like gang territory, we'll stay out of each other's way. No, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah no, like like they, like a very specific. Like, why would we go against each other when we can divide up the state and conquer our own little areas? So, um, okay, I actually want to talk about Buffalo Wild Wings because that's where we went after the the game because again we needed to sort of we just needed to eat before we went back to our hotel to record the podcast and is buffalo wild wings anyone's favorite wings joint probably like it's, the, it's the most prolific it's are do people love people say oh i love buffalo wild wings does anyone actually think that if you live somewhere where the local paper does a poll and the Poll winner comes back as the best wings being Buffalo Wild Wings. You probably live somewhere crappy. That's, I guess, how well, I that think seems, about well, it. We don't have to say it like that. No, I'm not saying that Buffalo Wild you, Wings. You maybe just live in a I'm place where it's mostly changed. Yeah, or or no, no, no. I, just I'm aren't willing options. to say Buffalo Wild Wings is crappy. Don't criticize people where they live. Yeah, there's not options. Maybe you you don't live in a place with as many options. Right. right. I just, it's odd to like, I never want to go. I love wings. It's my number one thing that I crave. I get cravings for wings and I have to, but I never, 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 never go. There's a Buffalo Wild Wings two miles from my house. I never go there because I am fortunate enough to have 10 other wing options around me. And I, and when I got my Buffalo, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't decline to go there. It's like, Hey, we, we're going to go there. So that's fine. But I would never pick to go yeah. there. And it's just, it's one of those, and I know there are people listening. I just am a boneless guy. I get it. They're chicken nuggets. I just like the sauce. I don't really like the bones. I like the white meat. I want white meat and buffalo sauce. That's an, and like a, like a, you know, a crispy breading. That's, that's all I want. So if you're a, like, you want to rip meat off of an animal's bone, like I get it. That's fine. I don't want to do that. But it's the Buffalo Wild Wings I got, they're not completely covered. Like it's like they're the the wing the sauce is like pasted on rather than like you put it in that bowl and you shake it up and you cover every square inch of the boneless wing with the sauce. That to me is like that's like well this is not a real place. Like if I if the bottom of the wing doesn't have sauce on it because you just sort of like dump the sauce on top, I could do that at home. Like this is this is now it's like I could just cook up some some chicken nuggets and buy a bottle of sauce and dump it on top like and that's what buffalo wild wings does i just don't know like it's not it's fine as tvs right they have good commercials but like if you actually want to eat wings for real like right do people oh i love the t- what nobody does that i could name 10 places i go first 
well, let's. Why were we at B Dubs? It was because that was a place we knew the kitchen would probably no, be I'm, open I'm at eleven saying, o'clock agreed. at night, and we'd have tables. No, agree. So, but that's their mom. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like they're there ubiquitous, are things, yeah. and they're open, and they have TVs. When I uh, I used to get together before I covered a started covering a college basketball team that would, and then that team started making the NCAA tournament, which took a couple of years. I used to every year for March Madness had a group of guys in Lafayette who we would watch the entirety of the first two days of the NCAA tournament at one of the local B-dubs. Like, you'd show up for the first games on Thursday, stay all day, like, literally all day till the last minute. Like, you couldn't leave early. It was like a superstition thing. Next morning, everybody gets breakfast together, goes back to B-dubs, spends another whole day. It was a it was a marathon experience. And, like, that, I have fond memories of B-dubs because of that, but it's because it was just a convenient place to have all the TVs. It really had nothing to do with the food. The food was a... a yeah secondary consideration if it had been a chinese restaurant that had all of these tvs up that's probably and was open that late and still serving food until we wanted to leave that's where we probably would have just gone to to happy family or whatever and watch the nca tournament yeah yeah I, i'm used to, i mean and we'll get reaction from texters who are like oh i love b-dubs i just don't you must be getting something different and it's my fault I just I want to get boneless I, wings and I want to get sauce on them and I want them to be completely will, covered. But I'm just my my favorite B dubs treatment Pe- is the Chipotle barbecue dry rub. Chipotle barbecue dry rub and then you're dipping that in ranch. That I I that's my go to at B dubs now. All right, what are you thinking about, Nathan? Uh, we need to really speed up the driverless cars thing. I could really use a driverless car. I feel like these. Oh, speed up or destroy? No, bring them. Oh one? yeah, bring them. Bring them. Yeah, I'm ready for it. Because you want to, you want to write your story while your driverless car is taking you down the or road, or anything, or sleep. Like I, <laughs> like there were so many things I could have done that were more productive for my life with those eight hours back to and fro Lansing than just driving and trying not to get you know, have somebody swerve in front of me or whatever like, i would rather turn that over to the i trust the robots i'm ready for the robots to take that away and let me do something else with that time i thought i saw a headline the other day that like driverless cars are like not going well it it does it's they do have driverless cars they're called public transit yes <laughs> like that's I actually think the idea of like, well, how are you going to solve this? Like, well, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to have these highways and that everyone's going to be in their own individual little pod getting somewhere and like being in traffic, but it's just a robot's going to drive it. It's like, well, couldn't you just build a track next to the road and put everybody in that? And then that thing could go 200 miles an hour and a robot could drive that. Like, yes, I think yes, the one time I had, the one time I had the robot guy on the podcast years and years ago, and again, it's one of those things. It's like when we you used to pay a toll on the road, and when they decided to do away with tolls and toll workers, they didn't build a robot toll worker to take your money. They designed like Easy Pass that you can just zip through and it does it. Like it's not – this is almost like – it's like, oh, we're going to build a robot to – put in the driver's seat of your car and you're going to own a robot. It's like, Hey, chip time to drive the East Lansing. I'm going to drive you drive robot chip. That's the equivalent to me of like a driverless car. It's like, well, just get, make public transit better. There should be a train that you can take from Columbus to Ann Arbor. And then you get off in Ann Arbor and then you take it from Ann Arbor to East Lansing and you achieve the equivalent of what you want, which is work or sleep 
while you're getting somewhere. And that we're not invested in that, but instead we're like, ah, oh, no, the car will drive itself. It's fine. It's fine. A squirrel will jump out in the road and the robot car will be like, I don't know what to do and drive you off the road, but it's fine. The driverless cars are going to work out. It's crazy to me. Make trains, man. Make some train tracks. Yes, I, I, I guess I see what you're saying, that when, when it's a mix of driverless cars and drivered cars and you still have the crazy drivers on the road acting unpredictably in their own uh, accord and hoping that the driverless car responds in the right way. I understand why people are squeamish about that, but to me, I feel like like I might as well be getting on a, a pilotless airplane for all I know. That could be flown by a robot. I don't know. I'm just a guy strapped to a chair in a box in a tube, and something is flying the plane. Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's not. I don't actually really see that until I'm getting off the plane. So I feel like I've already yielded a lot of that control over to something else anyway, and I'm ready to do it with my four-wheel transportation. I like that Ohio State had five home games to start the year, and then we had to drive like (laughs) Like four hours, and you're like, I'm done. I never want to drive a car again. Where are the driverless cars? All right, so the thing I'm thinking about is I don't know. I had to mute – three people that I follow because I either find them interesting or they cover something that I care about because like while the dragon show was on Sunday night, they were tweeting out things about the dragon show that are screwing it up. That it's like, it's not exactly a spoiler, but they're commenting why people get on Twitter and comment about live television. What they think it's like not giving it away, but like your your tweet is so interesting about live television. Oh, I can't, you know, oh, I wouldn't want to be that giraffe on the Dragon Show. It's like, oh, okay, great. There's a giraffe on the Dragon Show. Thanks. Why did you do that? Do you think you're interesting? Do you think you're entertaining? You're just screwing it up for people. And by the way, it's football Sunday. People got stuff to do. They're watching the Sunday night game. They're working, whatever. Maybe not every single person is watching a popular show right as it's on. And your tweet is not clever or cute or interesting. It's just being a, a jackal. Like I don't know. I don't know what purpose people think it serves. Whoa! Like like even like the idea of whether you found it boring or interesting or exciting, or you guessed what was going to happen, or you never would have guessed what was going to happen. What is that comment? What is? Why do people have that need? Stop it. Stop doing it because not everybody is watching. And it's not, I'm not saying, oh, you can't ruin margin call for me that came out 11 years ago. The show has been, the show is still on and not everybody is watching it. Stop it. Why do people do that, Nathan? It's such an instinct. It's such an odd instinct that people have to share information that actually will have a negative effect on their audience and share it in the most boring unclever way possible and think that it is a contribution to society. I can't believe how many people tweet boring, unclever things, especially during sporting events, but at least a sporting event, like you're not ruining it. So sporting event is live. We get it. Like, that's the thing. You don't have to say like, Oh, I don't want to tell you whether the guy made the field well or not. We get that sports are different. People are so basic. You're so basic. You are so basic world. So shut your Twitter hole and let people maybe have a day to catch the show that everybody's watching. You're not interesting. God, I can't imagine being a basic Twitter person. Oh, my comment on the thing is, wow, that was a great... 
Why do people do it? Have a thought that maybe 4 million people didn't have the exact same thought that you had. Because guess what? If you have a thought that 4 million other people have at the same moment, nobody cares. Keep it to yourself. You basic TV-ruining, boring carcass of a human. And I muted three people that I want to follow because I can't risk their basicness interrupting my pop culture life. So wait, when you say muted, do you mean they are people who you followed on Twitter and had notifications set for? Or they're just people who would be scrolling through your timeline? No, I don't set notifications for anything. Okay. Nothing, just scrolling so, through my timeline. Two things. Number one. So now I muted them. So now I, I didn't block them. Right. I didn't block them. But now I can't see anything they tweet. Because you haven't watched the show yet or because you are watching the show on Sunday nights? No, I haven't had okay. a chance to okay. watch it yet. No, because that's crucial. I was that's crucial because I wanted to make sure that you weren't talking about why is it that when I go on to watch a show and then also get on Twitter at the same time, I don't have to worry about spoilers in my Twitter, which isn't what you're saying. No, so I, just I wanted... was processing the Browns but, podcast yes. and watching the Ravens Bengals game and had Twitter up, and people in that moment were screwing up the Dragon. But show I think that's me. an important clarification because people would also tell you just get off Twitter while you're watching a show. But that's not what you're saying. I am. I agree with you, and I. I am conditioned now to the point where I am terrified of spoilers for things. Like I don't want to be that guy because I've had stuff spoiled for me before and it does hurt the experience. But like, because even now earlier in this conversation, we were talking about margin call it came out 11 years ago. You're like, Hey, Hey, hey don't tell me. And I'm like, I know you're watching it in the middle. So it's yeah. a little bit different, but like it's, it's been out a bit. Like I've watched, I've watched those clips on YouTube for a while now. So that's a little bit different. You can you you do cross a juncture at some point where I don't care too much about the spoilers anymore. But you're right. Like I, if something is happening live, where it's not like a game happens live and then the outcome is important and you move on to the next thing. Like you have to report on that. I remember back in the day, people used to get mad at us when the um, the timelines for the Olympics where like things would be shown in oh, prime yeah. time the next night, but they actually happened the day before at a weird time. Cause they're going on in like Sarajevo or Seoul or wherever. And we would have it in the paper the next morning and people would be like, Oh, you ruined it for me. Like I was going to watch figure skating or gymnastics tonight, but now I know what happened. I'm like, well, what do you want us to do? Like it happened like 16 hours ago. We can't go by just what the broadcast schedule is. So sports is a totally different thing. It has to be ruined. It's, it's, it's happening live in front of people in a way that a TV show is not. I can't believe how basic people are on social media. You're not interesting. Be interesting or get off. Okay. We will be back Wednesday show rants. Thursday show. Pretty sure it's going to be mid season Ohio state awards. And we do have our basketball bracket winner from April who won a spot on the show, who is going to be on that show with us. Oh, so we are setting that sneaking up. Sneaking him in before the next basketball season. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, Friday, Tishu and I will preview the weekend. We certainly have a big weekend to preview, and I'm really looking forward to the College Football Survivor Show this week. We're going to really dig in on the four humongous games this weekend. Shahan and I will talk about that on the Wednesday College Football Survivor Show. Penn State, Michigan, undefeated, undefeated. Tennessee, Alabama, undefeated, undefeated. Oklahoma State, TCU, undefeated, undefeated. USC, Utah, undefeated USC, two-loss Utah, but it's at Utah, and we thought Utah was going to be good. They might be able to screw it up for USC. Four gigantic games with playoff implications. 
It's a great weekend for Ohio State fans. You can kick back and relax, but you have these on in the background. So Shahan and I will talk about that on the College Football Survivor Show. But Tishu and I will preview the weekend from a gambling standpoint on Friday. And then we will have a Saturday Ohio State podcast for you where we are anticipating that we will re-rank the players on the roster to figure out, okay, here's who we thought the top 20 guys were coming into the season. Here's where we are now. We'll get our tech subscribers involved with that. Nathan, Steven, and I will have our rankings for that. If you want to be a tech subscriber and get to vote on this stuff, 614. We'll also have the tech subscribers vote on the preseason, uh, the midseason awards. Excuse me. 614-350-3315. Read cleveland.com slash OSU. We will have interviews with Ryan Day and a couple assistants on Tuesday. So we'll have texts and stories at cleveland.com up about that. But for now, for Nathan Baird, I'm Doug Maurice, and that was Buckeye Talk.